This is the Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net and in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. In our last two episodes on mental health in the courts, we talked about the fact that traditional criminal case management is not meeting the needs of the people we serve. We have to develop a new comprehensive and collaborative model. We need to create a fair and effective case management system that meets the challenges of those with behavioral health needs. It's been estimated that up to 70% of the individuals in our criminal courts today have behavioral health issues. Currently, state courts do not generally have systems in place to help those with these challenges. This need is made even more urgent with the pandemic and the resulting case backlogs. We must find a new model to strengthen the collaborative court and community response to individuals with behavioral health needs. I'm Pete Kiefer and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This month is the third of our five episode discussion with members of the National Judicial Task Force to examine state court's response to mental illness. Some of the topics we'll explore include What is this new collaborative model for addressing case flow management? What are the four pillars that make up the new case flow management model? How can court administrators integrate this new model into a court's existing practices? And what resources are available for us to use now? I'm joined today by the Honorable Paula Carey, recently retired Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Trial Courts, and Don Jacobson, Senior Special Projects Consultant with the Arizona Supreme Court. Thank you both for joining today's podcast. Chief Justice Carey, why did you and the task force focus on developing the new model? And what are you seeing in the Massachusetts courts? We've developed this new approach really to meet an urgent need. As you indicated, I think in your introduction, our systems you know, are simply not meeting the needs of the individuals we serve who have behavioral health challenges. And increasingly, the court systems have become the default system for individuals not only suffering from substance use disorder, but serious mental illness. And as systems, we just have been ill-equipped to be able to address these issues. And we've used the power of the judicial system, judges in particular, but, but court systems, to really develop this collaborative approach and develop a framework for refining this collaboration and court community response to individuals with behavioral health needs with a a real focus on collaboration and viewing individuals from an individualized basis using assessments and really using uh, the tools that we have. The problem with individuals that come to us who have criminal background, but much of that criminal background is driven by their behavioral health needs, we really need to approach it differently. We've been using the 70-30 approach, which is our system is designed to really address the needs of 30% of the people that we deal with when 70% of the individuals that we deal with in the criminal justice system have behavioral health needs and we're simply not meeting them. I would suggest in Massachusetts, Um, we've had a huge dearth of uh, behavioral health providers, and that's created uh, significant backlogs for us. And 
creates a situation that we're, we really simply are not meeting the needs of the individuals we serve. We know that warehousing individuals into prison systems without adequate ability to get into treatment just simply is going to cause us to see these individuals again and again. So this new model um, is developed to strengthen the collaborative community uh, and court response for individuals with behavioral health needs. Our work has been informed by the ECCM project, which is the Effective Criminal Case Management Project, which really has uh, defined key elements, looked at productive court events, how to move systems through, uh, how to move cases through our system. The ECCM collected data on over 1.2 million criminal cases in 136 courts, suggesting and has suggested timeframes in terms of how we should move these cases through the court and effectively be able to deal with them. We've also learned from focus groups, learned how to deal with these issues. We're guided by guiding principles that I think Dawn is going to talk about. And we've developed this framework and frankly, looking at it almost like a, like a house with a foundation and pillars, which we're going to get into a little bit. But the basis is really the leading change model. And you're going to find that the leading change model is premised on the sequential intercept model where it looks at the criminal justice system on a continuum, beginning with the community, right down to intersection with law enforcement, intersection with the courts, right into incarceration or potential incarceration, and including reentry. So we've, we have digested each area of the continuum and we're providing resources so that court systems really have a how-to in terms of how to basically address these issues. And every court system is at a different place. And I think you're gonna find that ultimately these resources are really going to be crucial in helping court systems address the issues that all of us face when we have so many people that have come to our courts, uh, have, have serious mental illness and uh, behavioral health needs that don't always fit into the framework that we have established uh, within our systems. This is a brand new day. We've been forced to take a look at this really to meet our, the individuals we serve, we are there. Don, as a longtime court administrator and NACA member, why did you get involved? And what are you doing in the Arizona courts? You know, as spending decades in the trial courts, I think I saw kind of two significant issues that really impacted me and how we started to deal and to work with this. The first one was time and time again, we saw the same people coming through the system. They were high utilizers. They used a disproportionate amount of court resources. There was a lot of frustration with the judges, with the staff, because they would see the same people again and again and again. It shows that, that our system was not really treating the cause, the, the, the issues associated with these individuals. Many of them had behavioral health issues. They had addictive personalities. They had mental illness. There was a lot of things going on uh, with these folks that were truly not responded, as Justice Kerry pointed out, by the, the system that we've established. So first, I, just the frustration of dealing with these, these individuals that would kind of rotate through the system. The second thing that I noticed was that our jail populations were just 
becoming out of hand. The, the individuals who were in jail were not really dangerous individuals. They were often kept there because they didn't know what else to do with them. They were mentally ill. There was no place to put them. There was no treatment options. There was nothing out there. Both these issues had a tremendous negative impact on the individuals. Both the individuals coming, rotating through the court and the individuals being housed in jail. This is not the best place. I mean, you just have to stop and think about it for a second and realize jail is not a therapeutic environment for those who have an illness. So what we're trying to do is move this out of that realm that these impacts on these individuals that were just negative again and again and again, as well as the just the wastefulness of the resources. We were using huge amounts of resources and we're not having any impact. So we looked at this and we said, okay, we've got to try and, and make some modifications and changes. So what we've done in Arizona is actually, you know, just as Carrie mentioned, we've got the four pillars where we took a lot of the information. We took that leading change model and we actually helped kind of implement it here in Arizona as kind of our standard. We use the sequential intercept model as the baseline that we're going to use to try and work with these individuals. Find places along the continuum to deflect, divert, bring them out of the process. And then we're going to train our judges, train our staff, try and look at what we're doing to make some modifications so that what we do will have an impact on the individual. And we're going to talk a little bit more about case management, but this person-focused process is what we're really trying to get towards, not just a system or a case-focused process. We've done it through three areas, using the sequential intercept model leading change. We focused on education both case-focused training. So you know what kind of cases, what, how to recognize individuals with a mental illness in a case. And we're training those for both inside and outside the justice system, because we work with a lot of other entities, both service providers, as well as law enforcement, jail, and so forth. How do we deal with those who have a mental illness? Then we have person-focused training. How do we have developed resilience, recognition of mental illness, these things? We then, the second element we've tried to do is look at our process. Are we truly implementing diversion, deflection, the rule changes that we need to make this truly uh, shift in our paradigm so that we can create a focus on those individuals and have an impact that's a positive one instead of just recycling through again and again? And the third area is our collaboration communication. We're spending a lot of time on this, not only with those on the criminal justice side of things, but those outside of the criminal system, because this impacts not just criminal, but civil, family, juvenile. So many areas have an impact that we're trying to get towards here. So we're working very diligently to create those, those bridges and that discussion with those. It's, I'm, I'm always amazed that people create their process and they're working in their little isolated places and they don't realize all the impacts, all the things going on out there. So creating those bridges, that communication, the collaboration is a crucial element of that, that we're trying to, to work towards and, and see if we can, can bolster. So, I, and I think this reflects very much what Justice Kerry was talking about in terms of how this has just been a, a sea change in what we're trying to accomplish and do in terms of our vision of what the justice system really is about and how it's impacting these people. Well, and I love the word 
bridge. I think that's a perfect description of what we're trying to do here, that our systems often struggle, you know, to understand mental health challenges. And, uh, you know, and it leads to outcomes that just exacerbate the condition and perpetuate the problems that bring people to our systems. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you're absolutely right, Justice Kerry. And it's just like, you know, we, we've gotten to the habit of this is the way we do things. And if we stop and look at outcomes, I think we can create new ways to make it, make it happen. In Massachusetts, we've mapped our system across the, the Commonwealth, and it's been tremendously helpful in identifying and bringing community partners together so you can identify the resources available and the gaps where you need to plug the resources. Oh, yeah, and you know, a lot of states are, are very much like Arizona. You know, when you're talking about those gaps, in, in that we have huge rural areas, large expanses of, of of lightly populated areas within the state. We also have more Native American reservations and federal land than almost any other state in the nation. And we so we have federal jurisdictions, state jurisdictions, we have counties, we have cities, we have all these various jurisdictions, and we're trying to find ways to bridge those gaps, get those services out, particularly to the rural areas that are just, there's just nothing there. And how do we manage that? And how do we make that happen? It's, it's a, just a, a great point. Chief Justice Kerry, as I read the new model, I see four critical components or what are called pillars. Can you describe the four pillars? As I indicated earlier, we sort of viewed this project as and looked at our systems, you know, as, as a house, we have a foundation that we use, you know, community behavior, evidence-based practices, institutionalization, sustainability, and funding, as well as diversity and equity and inclusion, because often some of the work that we, we do adversely affects uh, individual and marginalized communities. Court leadership is important and data-driven decision-making. So that was the foundation. It was that upon that foundation that we built our pillars. And we think we got it right. Uh, really think these pillars really describe what, where we need to be. So the first is strengthen community responses and minimize criminal justice system involvement. As Don cried, really, we needed to structure this ongoing collaboration among community stakeholders. And Arizona has done a good job of really doing that. And we need to do that in order to have a sustainable community based responses. We can't do this alone. As court systems, we really need to work with our justice partners. And this was a collaborative effort with justice partners as we began to build these pillars. And the courts can either convene these efforts or ensure that they are at the table and promoting ideal behavioral health crisis systems, promoting deflection diversion, doing all the things that uh, Dawn identified and that I identified, that we identify these individuals early, as early as conceivably possible when they intersect with the justice system, ideally before they intersect with the justice system. And robust community behavioral health systems um, are really key elements, and they can help us as a court system be able to assess and provide referrals, whether it be diversion or into treatment, so that individuals, we stop the cycling of behavior. And Dawn's going to go into some of the details of some of the essential elements, but the second pillar is to really promote early intervention and effective management of court cases. 
early screening and identification of mental health needs and criminogenic risks, and coupled with criminal justice and court responses that really can identify what, it, what is needed for this particular individual. Got to be individualized treatment, and it's got to be early and often, because as people move through our systems, their needs change, and we need to adapt to the needs uh, or adapt to those changes. It could be that a particular individual has received outpatient treatment and they reoffend. Well, that may mean that we need to take a further look at that particular individual, reassess that person, and perhaps come up with a different way to approach this person. Not necessarily because as Dawn indicated, jail's not gonna help an individual who's got a serious mental illness or a serious substance use disorder. It really more effectively can be dealt with if we take a look at what our plan is for that particular individual. So this model will help state court systems develop these best practices. Uh, the third pillar is to institutionalize alternative pathways to treatment and recovery, and hopefully by doing that to improve outcomes. The implementation of court-led team-based problem-solving approaches to address the individuals with behavioral health needs. Effectively, if we can effectively divert or deflect these individuals, that's the ideal. Away from traditional case management processes and really to treatment and to alternative processes. Diversion is essential in this collaborative model, and the information about individuals obtained during the early intervention. And you're going to see that there's so many resources that we're providing in terms of initiatives that are out there for that, that are already being tried and true in certain states, uh, that these models out there. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel as you begin moving this forward. We need to make informed decisions at the outset of the individual's connection to the criminal justice system. Criminogenic uh, risk and needs need to be assessed, coupled with behavioral health screens and assessment, and also looking at the case characteristics and the history of the individual that we're dealing with. And we can develop these alternative pathways, whether it be diversion, civil alternatives, specialized dockets and the like. There's about a whole host of suggestions that, that we have. Lastly, we need to talk about how do we manage post-adjudication events and how do we handle transitions effectively? That's tremendously important when you think about the fact that in many states, jails and prisons just don't have the, the resource and they, they, they don't have the treatment. Uh, and don't meet the treatment needs of the individuals who, who may be incarcerated. But in the event an individual is incarcerated, we need to make sure that um, we have effective transitions from incarceration to the community. We need to make sure that the physical and uh, behavioral health needs can be met as they transition into the community. And that presupposes that someone is incarcerated. Post-adjudication, it could be that someone is not incarcerated. And we need to ensure that all court partners, whether it's probation or some other community supervision uh, agency, that we are really meeting the needs of the individuals effectively where they are, as they are, and that we have effective 
screening and assessment so that we really get it right. And this pillar talks about transition plans, aftercare, and best practices in, in terms of reentry, ensuring that medical insurance needs are met before the person is released. Those are just some of the, uh, the initiatives that we're looking at, as well as ensuring that individuals have resources to help them in case management to help them uh, obtain housing, uh, just the very foundations that they need in order to be successful moving forward. You know, Justice Kerry, I, I think you covered those so well, those four pillars. And if you look at this and you, you have any familiarity with the sequential intercept model, you'll see that the pillars actually fold right into those, don't you? I mean, you see how you move from community involvement, even before justice system involvement. You move from community involvement all the way through post-incarceration care, follow through, tracking those individuals, making sure there's, there's support and so forth at the other side. It follows the same kind of concept. And we were putting these pillars together. That was really our intent there. Uh, you, can see, you can see how it just supports the individual all the way through after involvement with, with the system. It's not just about the system. It's about getting that individual through the process and helping them with whatever their needs are, wherever they are. Don, how do you envision court administrators integrating the principles described in the new model into the court's existing case flow management practices? The actual practices or the actual principles of case flow don't change here. I mean, if you look at the, the kind of those old, old proven principles of case flow management, you got things like leadership, performance goals, calendaring, case assignment, early, regular, and continuous oversight of the case, collaboration and outreach with partners, information sharing technology, and there's some others too, but, but these principles stay the same. They don't change. We're not looking at doing a wholesale change to the principles of case management here. But what we're doing is we're saying, let's look at our focus of what we've done in these, these elements of case flow management and say, have our, has our focus moved away from having the type of impact and the type of results we're seeking uh, in the case? If our only goal is to get the time to disposition down, that's great. I mean, time to disposition is very, very important. It's one of the measurements we have to determine our efficiency in relationship to a case. But if you look at the overall principles of the framework related to, to a high efficiency court, it's only one part of it. The high performing court has not only efficiency, it has effectiveness right? It has elements related to the individual and outcomes. So what we're doing is we're saying, let's take those same principles, but let's shift just a little bit towards not just the case impact, but the person impact from a case-centered process towards a person-centered process. We don't ignore the case. We don't say time to disposition becomes irrelevant. But what we do say is that's just one element of this. Now, our, our specialty courts have done a great job of this. If you look at DUI drug courts and the measurements of performance, recidivism, other things that have been coming into that. We've included them in the mental health courts and so many of our measurements related to our specialty courts. But what we're saying is that these need to go beyond just that and really be looked at in the overall management of all kinds of cases. Individuals who have a mental illness don't just come into mental health court. 
Many of them don't qualify. Many of them don't get on that docket. They're part of the entire system. They may be on the civil side of things. They may be in family court. They may be anywhere within the system because mental illness is no respecter of individuals. And mental illness does not mean you have a criminal case. So we have to stop and say, is our case-centered process that we've been developing over the last several hundred years, is that really meeting the needs of the individuals? Or should we be shifting towards including, not excluding, but including a person-centered process where we focus on more than just the case-based elements? And that we include those things that are crucial to meeting the needs of the individual courts, the individuals that come into the courts. So that is kind of what we're developing here, is to give the courts the tools they need to be able to say, let's not just cycle these people through the system again and again and again, but let's stop, examine the system and say, what changes do we need to make? And how do we have an impact on those individuals so we can move them out of the system? System's not the best place to work with those who are from mental illness. Let's get them out of the system. Let's work with them outside the system the best way we can. Let's lose our customers because these are not customers that we're meeting the needs of. We're actually often doing harm to them because of our, the way we've dealt with them throughout the system. So let's move them out of the system and find new ways to work and to deal with these individuals. And as an example, I think one of the things that we're, and we're looking at is, you know, how do we deal with individuals in a courtroom that have a serious mental illness or behavioral health need? You often have to deal with those particular individuals differently in order not to trigger them and to have the, the best outcome that you can possibly achieve from a courtroom. Courtrooms, for, even for the average person who doesn't have serious mental health needs, you know, being in a courtroom is, is particularly difficult, very stressful. So how do we treat those individuals with dignity and respect and treat them in a way that they'll respond well? I mean, it may be that you have to allow that individual to put their back. They don't like to put their back towards the court. Now, do we need to educate our judges and our court staff about how to really address the needs of these particular individuals? because they have to be addressed differently. And so what we intend to do is really look at some of these essential elements and develop one to two to three pagers to really help people focus on not only the issues related to the unique issues related to that, but also to give resources, to give resources. And there are, there are a lot of resources out there that can help court systems address the needs, not only educational needs, uh, but developing the system changes that they need to address these issues. Finally, what resources have been developed that we can use now? And what will the task force be developing to improve case flow management and outcomes in 2022? Chief Justice Kerry? I would say that we've, we're developing a resource hub, uh, which is a terrific resource. In addition to the, to the one to two pages that I described, which is an area that there's actual resources that, for instance, if someone's interested in first appearance and pretrial practices, and they're looking to focus in on that particular area, we'll give you resources in that one to two page or that will talk, talk to you about, um, about uh, approach, you know, pretrial, like early intervention and effective case management in court cases. You know, we have a briefing on that. We have a whole series of resources, uh, mental health screening forms, 
PCUDs. We identify a whole host of different screens for people to take a look at to determine what works for them. In addition, there's a whole host of, you know, even in the uh, reentry area, we're beginning to work on how do you, how do you make sure that the benefits enrollments are happening? And how do we effectively transition? Um, so we've got a whole host of really detailed trauma assessment questionnaires. You know, it's an iterative website that I think is really going to be helpful. And data, data is really important. We haven't really focused too much on, on data. I think Dawn mentioned it, but it's tremendously important. And you're going to find that data collection and information is in this resource. It'll give some examples. And the ECCM project is also something that you can really look at. As Dawn said, it was a focus on criminal justice cases, and it shows the continuum and gives sort of standards about how quickly our case transition uh, will be. That being said, you know, sometimes you need to move a behavioral health case through the system really quickly. And sometimes due to decompensation, you can't. And we have to meet the needs as a system. So I think that gives a little, gives you a little bit. Um, Dawn, any comments? Justice Kerry, absolutely correct here. The, you, know, you mentioned that interim report and that this is an iterative process. I mean, if you look at the pillars, for example, if you take just pillar one, we have kind of four elements to there, creating a comprehensive behavioral health crisis system. Now, that's just, that's just amazing because it's so much outside of the realm of what we normally think of in terms of courts. How do we support the new uh, upcoming uh, 988 phone number coming in, the crisis response in our communities? How do we work with them? so that we can provide support to those going out and dealing with the crisis on hand. Deflection is another element of this. How do we create deflection? Law enforcement is often the first responder in these things uh, for individuals who are going through a mental illness, a mental health crisis. And how do they respond? Do they just pick the person up, drag them to jail? Is there other options? How do we keep that from happening? Which brings us to the third one is can we stop that revolving door? Can we find new ways? And that includes things such as prosecution alternatives. Can we find and can we work with those within our system, our prosecutors, and can we find new ways to work with these individuals? Is that possible? And I'll tell you, my discussions with prosecutors have always been positive on this. They recognize the same problems that we see every day. They are tired of dealing with the same individuals and they want new tools. They want new options. They can go out and they can work with these individuals other than just cycling them through again and again. They see the same frustrations as we do. We need a partner and find alternatives to work with the prosecutors to make sure these individuals are diverted out of our system at the earliest possible time. So, and that's just the first pillar. We've got these tools, we've got these options in there. So as, as Justice Kerry mentioned, I encourage you to start looking at some of these. Some things to look at, uh, the CCJ Costco websites. Uh, in fact, I, I looked that up this morning and the website right now for, for Costco talks about the, the Costco CCJ SAMHSA joins forces. SAMHSA is the federal mental health funder and, and they're now joined with, with CCJ Costco. You'll see that there, you'll learn about what is available, what resources are out there. The National Center for State Courts website, go to uh, ncsc.org forward slash behavioral health. It'll bring up a plethora of information, resources, things you can learn. And again, this is moving beyond just 
mental health court. This is not about just mental health court. Mental health court's an integral part of this, but we need to see and create our vision wider and broader. And you'll start to see that uh, through these various resources. Third, uh, NACOM is developing a guide to mental health. This will be coming out before uh, the conference this summer, the NACOM guide to mental health and how to manage mental health cases. That's coming out as well. So these entities, these are in the national level. If you look at your local entities, you will find tons and tons of information. Just even in Arizona, we, we've partnered with the Bar Association, State Bar, uh, in developing an entire website on helping individuals with civil commitment cases and a guide and helping. There's tons of resources out there. And every state is starting to work and develop these. So you can find those national ones as well as you can find some of those local ones. And once we complete the interim report uh, from the task force and get that out there, you'll see a lot of these resources that we're talking about uh, iterated very clearly uh, throughout that report. And we're gonna just bury you under options. At least you can look at where your needs are because every jurisdiction, every court has a different need, has a different thing that they've got to deal with and work with. So we don't wanna just limit it to say, well, this is what we see. We wanna try and make it as comprehensive as possible and make it as inclusive as possible so that no matter where you are in the system, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what you're working with, here are some tools, some things you can just begin the process to move towards what we've been calling this person-centered uh, case management. I want to thank Chief Justice Paula Carey and Don Jacobson for joining us today and sharing more of the important work of the task force. Be sure to join us in May for the next installment in this series on mental health in the courts. As always, my thanks to you court professionals tuning in to today's episode. You face the difficulties of mental illness in the courts every workday. It is your dedication and hard work that allows the courts to fulfill the pledge of providing fair and impartial justice. Thank you. Join us in April for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. 
They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.